This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we continue our 2020 horror month with the 2018 American horror film written and directed by Ari Aster in his feature film directorial debut titled Hereditary. Starring Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, and Gabriel Byrne, as we follow a family haunted by a mysterious presence after the death of their secretive grandmother. Hereditary premiered in January of 2018 at the Sundance Film Festival and was theatrically released in the same year. It received critical and commercial success, making over $80 million on a $10 million budget. I'm Gabe Vienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined by none other than Alan Martindale, veteran, podcaster, editor, and horror fanatic. Alan, how the hell are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm still decompressing. I've seen this movie now, I think, a total of three times, and it still affects me every time I see it. I, for those that are listening took eight minutes to do the initial intro on this on this episode uh, i damn near just passed everything over to alan and turned my mic off <laughs> yeah i mean that's i mean the aftermath of watching this movie it's a tough watch it's a really tough watch it's um last year when we were talking about the original texas chainsaw massacre i i mentioned that i got into horror because i saw that movie and then ever since then, I've been looking for the feeling that I had the first time I saw that. Uh, and this, watching Hereditary, the first time I saw it, was the closest I've ever come to getting that original feeling that I felt when I watched Chainsaw. Wow. It was the closest I've ever got. Well, you're going to have to explain why as we walk through some of this film. I, uh, my reception of the film, I've seen the movie twice. I saw it once maybe a year ago. I didn't see it on initial release, but I saw it uh, about a year ago and then, of course, rewatched it here for the podcast. And I have some mixed feelings about it in, in the sense of what it is and what it's saying and how it fits into the horror genre as a whole. But I'm interested to uh, hear your uh initial get-go as we walk through some of this, because there is a lot of things here to talk about and kind of decompress and some complexities uh, that, that fall into, of course, hereditary uh, elements, generational elements, family elements, cultism, paganism, different things of that nature, I think are all kind of embedded in this story. And so uh, I'm curious to hear you kind of, in this case, walk us through and kind of fill uh, what made you get that feeling? Because that's a big comparison, especially for you. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying it's it's as good as Chainsaw, but it just it was the closest I've come to getting that feeling where I cannot believe what I'm watching at times. Where Chainsaw, it's it's more throughout the whole film. This is obviously one big moment that uh, happens pretty early in the film, and it's the first time that that I felt that holy shit! I can't believe they just did that. 
type of thing. Yeah, there, I think I know what scene you're referring to. It would be the scene that I think anybody who's watched the movie, uh, uh, and I, well, there's no spoiler alerts here. If you haven't watched the film, go pause it now and watch it and then come back and listen. But I think we're referring primarily to uh, Charlie, who's the young girl, 13-year-old girl, uh, being decapitated on the highway. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty intense. Is that fair to say that I I guessed correctly? Yeah, you nailed it, man. You nailed it. That's because the one. that is the one shocker in the film that uh, up to that point uh, it, you feel there's a bit of a slow burn in a lot of ways. Uh, there, there, he he does build elements of curiosity for me. So, um, you know, just because it feels atmospherically kind of unique and strange in in its in in the way it's presented. But that particular scene is gonna is gonna make you jump out of your seat in shock. I think. Yeah that that scene, I so I saw this um, I saw this in the theaters with Jess when it came out, and we went and watched it, and obviously that scene is is pretty traumatic. And I, I love this movie. I loved it from the get go. I thought it was great. Uh, I loved it so much that my I, we were on vacation. I was on vacation with my kids, and my oldest son loves horror. He loves it. So I'm like, dude, you want to go see Hereditary? I was like, dude, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Like it's, there's a, there's a point there where it's pretty rough and he doesn't care. He, you know, he, he can watch anything, but my, my middle son wanted to come. He doesn't like horror. He's scared of the ghosts and he's scared of the spooky stuff. He can handle like, like slasher flicks and stuff like that. But when it comes to, to ghosts and stuff, he, he's creeped out. Uh, and he wanted to come and I'm like, man, this is tough. Like if you're going to come just know that it's it's pretty bad and then we're there and i know i know the scene's coming and it's coming and you know they're at the party i'm like oh my god it's gonna come soon and then they're driving home and charlie's out the window and then bam (laughs) and then my son he did that the slow turn to me like and he looked at me and it, it was a look that i'll never forget as long as i live it was a look that just said why would you take your children to see this movie it was the most like condemning, damning look I've ever got from anyone in my entire life. Alan, I have to concur. How old is oh, he? Totally. He's 13, I, right? No. Uh, right. Well, now he's, uh, let's see, he's 15. So he was 13 at the time. When it, when it, when it came out. I got to yeah. concur with him. What the hell are you thinking? Hey, man, I, I tried to tell him. I was like, just, just, Fair just so you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your head. This is pretty tough. This is yeah. going to be nuts, man. Uh, and needless to say, we were on vacation and needless to say, he slept on the floor at the foot of my bed for the rest of the vacation. What a, what a sad story. (laughs) It's a pretty sad story. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. That is definitely the scene that affected me and affected everybody. Um, I, I know a lot of people are going to watch this movie and I know people who hate this movie, uh, particularly because of the final act, because it goes so haywire. Well, it's so wacky and weird. Leading up to Charlie's decapitation, which essentially, if you're looking at it formulaically, if that's a word, um, it's the end of the first act. It's the shocker that launches you. It's 30 minutes in and boom, her her head's gone. She's dead. And now the family's in pure chaos. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, but, But before that, it also starts with some curious notions of the grandmother's death. I mean... The opening title starts with an obituary of their grandmother. And it's, a, it's a very strange way to open the film. It, it's a, it is a very strange way to open the film. And then, of course, at the funeral, um, 
what what was interesting here is there's like a lot of foreshadows in in everything that he does. Oh, it's everywhere. Um, it, it's everywhere. It precedes every scene. Uh, in, in you know what I mean. So like he's not in in a lot of ways like he's not really hiding much from you until you get to like you mentioned the end, and then you start seeing the over the dramatic build into what it is even bigger than what he built before. I mean, he's not hiding stuff. He's giving you symbols. He's giving you precursors and in, in scenes like we know if you if you rewatch it the second time i did i mean he's telling you that charlie will be decapitated after she decapitates a bird's head yep uh, so absolutely he's he's foreshadowing and he does that throughout right so he's foreshadowing things but what he doesn't foreshadow so much to me at least is the ending that last 10 minutes of the film that the last 10 minutes i think are the best the best uh, sequence in the entire movie. I, well, it's my favorite. Let's reserve um, some comments for it because I don't want to get to the end. Oh, I will. First. Well, I do want to say one thing. I know, like, if you if you're someone who has watched this movie and you got to the end and you're like, "What the hell is happening?" Because I know people who hate this movie because of that that final act. I have a theory that will explain it all if it's true. Like, I'm, I'm so excited <laughs> to hear it because when I got to the last 15 minutes, the first time I watched this, I went, "What the hell is this shit?" And, and you, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, maybe it doesn't explain everything, but I've seen this movie three times. And my theory developed after the first time I saw it. The second time, it kind of solidified it. By this time, I'm like, I'm writing stuff down to, to justify my theory. I'm like, oh, yeah, dude, this explain. It's all explained. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. Well, and I, I, I want to I hear it. Let's walk through a little of the story. Let's tell let's me about the, characters. the story first. Tell me about and the characters. Okay, so Charlie, what, what's wrong with what's the deal with Charlie? Charlie is I don't quite understand. I don't understand. Charlie is uh, she's a 13 year old girl, but really she is more around the age of eight. I would say at least the way they, the family treats her. She is more treated kind of as a, a very younger sister uh, to uh, Alex, Alex Wolf's uh, Peter. Sorry, excuse me, Peter. Um, and it just seems it just seems like they're they're overprotective of her. She's really worried about who's going to take care of her. She doesn't strike me as a teenager, even a young teenager. She doesn't strike me as all at all near that age. I mean, when she's riding in the car, she's in the back seat. You know, like it's that's something a little kid does. The, there's a scene, too, where after grandma dies, she's very disturbed by it in the sense that she's lying in bed and her mom comes and. And uh, she asks her mom, who's going to take care of her now? Right. So Annie is the mother played by Tony Collette. And she she asks her mom, who's going to take care of me? That was a weird question to me. Yes. Because right? is, is that is that just symbolic of the fact that the mother and daughter don't have a good relationship? Or I well, I think what it is. And Annie even or says is it the this. developmental. uh you know, uh, of her, of, 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 of Charlie's character. Like she's just not intellectually developed enough to like compartmentalize it all and put it in perspective. I think it's a little bit of both. I think the main thing it's trying to show is that grandma really, really wanted to be the mother figure to Charlie. Right. Cause she, she wanted, says that. Yes. And even later on, Annie says, uh, you know, she wasn't talking to her mom when she had Peter. So uh, she and, and she kept Peter away from from 
from her mom because her mom is insane, legit insane. And, but to make up for that, because she felt guilty, she kind of, she even says that I gave my daughter to her essentially. Like grandma wanted to breastfeed her, you know, when, when Charlie was a baby. Like it's, it's very, and you, I, I think it's very, very important that you, you pick up on these, on these cues because most, okay. Most movies, not most, but I think a lot of movies, people can read way too much into them. This movie, I think people aren't reading enough into it, to be honest with you. I don't well, know if I've ever said that before. This, I mean, there is a lot to read into and this movie, uh, you know, we did a couple of, uh, Largos or Largos Anthemos films with uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which there's so much to read into. We both loved that movie. And similarly, uh, I think this has a lot of things to read into as well. And you have to really kind of pay attention. Um, and only having seen it twice, that's why I don't know that I understand all the complexities of the characters because I think there's more to read into. Because one of the, curi the curious things to me was that uh, Annie is uh, obviously the relationship with her mother is is strange, uh, and also like you mentioned, her her mother wanted to really take care of her granddaughter, which in 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 a way that's beyond normal. <laughs> right, um, right. So it's concerning. It's concerning and 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 strange. And then, uh, but what was the deal with the miniature artist? Why is she a miniature artist? What does this have to do? with anything does it have to do with anything in the film because what you're going to notice when you watch this is immediately which some really cool shots the very opening scene pulls back it's a frame inside a frame and then pulls back into a miniature setup but these miniatures come into play pretty frequently throughout the film and i was trying to figure out do they have a rhyme and a reason or are they just there to kind of to kind of push the narrative along in an artistic way because they're very artsy Right. So I couldn't I couldn't come up with the com the combo or the reason, I should say, as why those miniatures mattered. And it a lot of times in movies, the and not always, but sometimes I should say uh, the main character's profession can play a role in the overall storyline. And to me, it's not playing a much of a role or I'm missing what it's playing, but it seems important because they emphasize it with shots and things like that. So explain to me the miniatures artist or what your perception of it is. Have you ever, have you ever had, um, like tried to find a metaphor or something like in it, like you're maybe reading something or you're watching a, a great film or, and you're trying to figure out what the metaphor is or what this is about. And then you nail it and you just, everything makes sense. Like everything connects. Yeah, yeah. There's times where, you, or you think, at least I think I do. I'm like, right, oh, I got exactly, it. I got exactly. It. That's that where I'm at right now. At the same time, I the, mean, <laughs> the miniature, know. right? Exactly. The miniatures play a part, and in, in my theory, so I'm not going to get into it yet. Okay, I good. That's a good. That was one of my questions, important. though. That was one of my questions. So that's good. So her profession as a miniatures artist will come into play later. Perfect. Uh, yeah. That that's great. Um, there is one. Uh, not a lot of spook scares up to this point, but you get about 12 minutes in and there is one after the death, after she's had the conversation with her daughter and she's up in the attic and she's reading through some of her mother's 
Annie, by the way, played by Tony Collette, she's reading through some of her mother's stuff. And there is that spook scare where she turns the light off and that you see the, the figure, uh, the apparition of her mother. Right. It's creepy. And that is it's a creepy, creepy spook scare there. And when you watch this movie, you really got to watch it in the dark because and not just it like for atmosphere and all that, but because it's real. if you watch it in a lit room, it's very hard to see everything you need to see in the frame in the dark shots because I tried watching it today. And I've, I had to put it on my phone and go into a dark room to watch it. Right. And turn up the brightness all the way in order to see some stuff. So to me, I mean, I understand why they did it. In a dark theater, it works great. But I think I think they went a little too overboard with, with, with how they colored this thing because it's really hard to see some stuff. And there's a lot of stuff in here. I love the secretive nature of not being able to see the grandma, but just in an opaque fashion. It's very translucent. It's not whole. It's not like right. just in your face physically. It feels like a, a little literal ghost figure, but it's because it's so the transparency of it, it's like 50% opacity. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't right, feel right. like it's at, it's I liked how they did it uh, and, and brought it in. But right before she sees that her mother, after she's died, she reads a note from her. Yes, this is a and- this is something into the craziness of the mother. You know, I read in the title opener that she was a secretive, the secretive grandmother. Um, And I'm going to read it because she says, my darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, mommy. Okay, crazy bitch. Batshit insane. What I mean is like, it doesn't really play anything later. I mean, he's, he's trying, I, is he trying to give me information about how crazy the mom is and she's in a secret cult or it, it's, it's trying to say that she, I, and I don't know, this is my interpretation. I think he's trying to show that she believes that she's part of something greater that she's that, you know, that in, and a lot of people who are crazy kind of feel this way, you know, they feel like they're special and they were called here for a reason. And that, you know, um, and that becomes important later on. Uh, but I really think it was just mainly to, to, to show that, first of all, she's crazy. Second of all, she thinks that there's some greater thing going on and she's forced Annie to sacrifice in order to get it. Yeah, because it, obviously there's something generationally, like it's something in the family lineage. That's the title of the film, Hereditary, like it's passed on. So there's something going on there that she thinks she's a part of something bigger Right. And that's an indicator of that. The follow up to that is Annie goes to turn off the light in the attic or wherever she is. And she looks over and she's actually built a miniature of her mother and Charlie as a baby and her breastfeeding Charlie. And the mother's got her breast out ready to feed her. Right. And and instead of like facing the door where you see it when you first come in, she goes and flips it around. Because she's spooked out now that her mom's some kind of ghostly figure in the room. She, well, and how how sane does does Annie? How sane can she be if she's making that kind of miniature? Uh, yeah, there's something going on. She's messed up, and this brings me to the point. Like, I feel bad for Steve. Steve is the husband. Oh, Steve, that, that poor guy, Gabriel Byrne, uh, is, is fantastic in this. And so the family is is Charlie, who is the girl we talked about. Annie, who's the mom, uh, played by Tony Collette, who, I mean knocks it out of the park i mean this is like best actress good she's great performance she's great in the film um 
Then you have Peter, the son, who's older than uh, Charlie. And you have Stephen, the dad. And Stephen is really, he's just a father trying to take care of his family. Yeah. And as shit goes wild and everything goes insane, he's just, he's, he's just there trying his best to glue this family together. Like, and, and I read um, in the trivia section that the cast really didn't feel like this was a horror movie at all. They felt like it was a family drama. And, I mean, and I actually have to agree with that. Yeah, I can, I can see extent. that for, for sure. I Actually, that's interesting because for me, the parts that brought me in more, and it could just be my bias towards certain types of films. I mean, I love all movies, but there's certain movies that touch me in different ways. And uh, I agree with that. I think the, the family dynamic uh, makes it uh, very dramatic and very personal uh, in so much that it almost takes you out of a horror type film for, I mean, good horror films have some of that too, but, this has so much of it that it's it's a little different. Like there's a scene towards after uh, Charlie gets decapita- decapitated and there's that family dinner, right? Where Peter oh, and the mom, man. and that scene's just all about the drama of losing a loved one. It's as unbearable, unbearable and when I say unbearable, I mean uncomfortable. It's as uncomfortable to watch as any horror scene you'll ever see. Yeah. Because it, it's, it feels so real the way he directed them and the acting and the performances and just you can feel the dynamic but you can like it just it's so so palpable yeah it's cra- i don't know how they created that you know what in in that one and we talked about how good tony collette is and she definitely carries the movie i think if you replace her with someone else you know maybe it's good is good or maybe it's not but her acting's incredible but I also thought uh, Alex Wolf, the young Peter kid, that's what in that scene sold it to me. I mean, his emotionality, like he's sitting at that table and his mom's kind of, he, the buildup, the physical performance is, is crazy. He does so good building up that frustration and trying to tell his mom, hey, look, what do you have to say? Like, he wants to get it out on the table, literally, like right. all the emotions, right. all the feelings of losing their, their daughter and their sister. Uh, and he's so good in that scene. Oh, so he, I mean, I think he's great in in for the most part. There are a couple parts with him that I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But for the most part, I thought he was great. I think the acting all around is fantastic. But that scene in particular, that dinner scene, it it really starts with the writing. I think it was written so fantastically. It's obvious. It's so obvious that Ari Aster, who wrote and directed this, has had this dinner before. Like he's had this conversation yeah. with family. You know, I don't. Who knows who? If it's if it his family or maybe his his parents as he was growing up, I don't know. But it obviously it's so real. Just the way they interact with each other and and you, they both want to get get it out, get it all out on the table. Right. They both do, but they don't want to act frustrated. So you know, it's like, mom, do you have something to say? And just the way he says that, and she's like, no, why would I have anything to say? Just so you can smirk it. Just the little jabs that they have. If it's just done so well and so so realistically and then it just explodes and tony collette and props to her because i think she plays from the very beginning there's like some sort of craziness in her like even at the beginning when she seems like she's a good mom and she's just confused about her her mom's death she's still got a little bit of crazy inside of her and you can kind of feel it and i don't know how 
Tony Collette was able to channel that so well. I think she overshares. I'm like, uh, but it could just be my personality because one of the scenes just before that. So first we get to that scene where we talked about Charlie at school. The dead bird flies into the window and then all the shots are foreshadows. She she goes into it shows a shot of Charlie's POV looking at the scissors and then it cuts to the outside and Charlie's cutting off and decapitating the bird, the dead bird's head, which is a foreshadow to her own death. And then the follow up scenes to those is and getting to the mother is it, she she's basically uh, is going to a, a group therapy session trying to uh, come to grips with the weirdness of her mother. Is that what or the, the, yeah. the what they left behind and or never resolved potentially? I think so. I think it's all the, the complicated feelings wrapped up in her death. Because she's sad, but she also resented her mother. And there's just a lot going on there. And we also know when she tells her husband, hey, I'm, I'm going to a movie. She's really going somewhere else. But then we also know that, and, and as you're watching this, he gets a call. Steve, the, the husband, gets a call talking about a body being exhumed from the ground. And it's the mother. <laughs> well, just the one line. He's on the phone. And you can't hear what the person on the, at the funeral home is saying. And he just says, what does desecrated mean? What do you mean desecrated? You know, it's just yeah. like, it's just like, oh God, one more thing on top of this. But so here's how, um, who did it? Who ex- was it her? Because we never, I think so. We never I think it was see, her. right? Um, I think we're, we're made to believe it's the cult, but I don't, I don't think it, it's the cult at all. And, and this goes all along with my theory. And, it's, and so and it's, I, don't, I don't want to share too much. But that's, I mean, that's kind of, the, that's, that's the mystery of it. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And you can take it a lot of different ways. That's the thing. Like, there, this is, Tony Collette said that Ari Aster was the most prepared director she's ever worked with. Like, this dude was meticulous about every little thing. Um, if, if you rewatch it, you can see the shapes uh, all over the house and the symbolism all over the house. Like there's so much crazy stuff in there. Um, so I, I think that there, and this is what I, what I mean when I say, I don't think people have, have really dissected this enough because I think people watch it and they either love it because it's so, you know, batshit crazy or they hate it because of that. But I think there's a, there's so much more going on deep down. And I think you really do have to navigate the maze of who dug up the body. You know, why was it dug up? Uh, you know, and a, a million other things that happened later on, like Joan. Joan's a crazy character. Yeah. Like, what's up with her? What's going like? There's so much going on. And we'll get to that, obviously. But there's just so much going on that I really feel like if you're not really paying attention, you, you just you will never be able to understand it. And I don't even understand the whole thing. And but I've watched it three times. I think it, I think we're, it's fair to say that there is a pretty good understanding that the family's crazy because the follow-up scene when she leaves and goes to the therapy session and she starts divulging past family history about her brother being a schizophrenic and basically killing himself and leaving a note behind that blames it on his mom for putting people into him. And, and I think the dad also committed a form of suicide by refraining to eat and drink. And he just literally died. So, the family's got, and then she talks about the back with her daughter, and then the, like we already talked about. So now we know pretty clearly that this family's messed yeah. up. 
So, so the mother had DID, uh, which is multiple personality disorder, essentially, uh, dissociative identity disorder is what it means, and dementia. And dementia, obviously, that, that typically happens later on in life. The father had psychotic depression, and he starved himself to death. Starved himself. And then the brother was a schizo. The, yeah, and the brother had schizophrenia and, and hanged himself. And, and so this is a nightmare soup of mental illness in this that's in this family it's it's just rampant just seeping through and i think um i think a really important key to this movie is when annie is at the support group and she says i'm blamed she never says what she's blamed for and she never says who blames her all that means to me and maybe maybe other people took it differently to me that means she feels tremendous guilt yeah, and I think oh, yeah. guilt, guilt is kind of the key to this entire nightmare that happens. I think I think it's the feeling of guilt, and we'll get into that more. But th- I mean, that's it's it's very expositional this scene. But I also think it's it's important important to really to really understand and digest it. So after that scene, we get we now we have a real good grasp, I think, of the family's background. The follow-up scene to that is Charlie back in her room making some kind of thing. But here's a question I have, which is the spectral light. What's that? <laughs> well, uh, it's supposed to be, uh, I, I think it's uh, some supernatural force, or maybe that's Paimon, Paimon, however you say his name, uh, one of the eight kings of hell who they're trying to summon, uh, or, summon or and put into... Embody. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is supposed to be his call. That's my guess. I may be wrong, but I know that's like one of the first areas that I remember seeing the spectral light where she's in her room and this spectral light comes through her room and then she walks over to the window, right? Um, So, And and we see this at various places throughout. That light comes and is in scenes throughout the movie. Um, And unless I'm mistaken, it only happens to Charlie and to Peter. I don't remember if I don't remember Annie seeing it. I think, I, and I, I will I'll double check, but I think it happens to her at the end in the hallway. But I'm not a hundred percent. Okay, okay. Uh, Char- uh, Charlie goes outside, and then because the, she sees that light, and it takes her outside. And now her mom comes running out and pulls her back in, and then forces her to go to a party with her brother. Her her mom calls her an idiot. Like Annie calls her, what are you? She says, what are you, an idiot? Like to me, you were getting these little clues that she's nuts. Like you don't, what kind of person says that to their kid, you know? Yeah, you don't. And uh, the other thing is she's 13. She's not four. You know, like if she goes outside, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. It's not like a four-year-old. But she didn't have her shoes out. She didn't have her shoes but she didn't, Yeah, she's like, yeah, you're going out barefoot. What are you, an idiot? Like it's just, and this is part of, you know, they just treat, Charlie like a like a baby yeah and it drives me crazy but here's the interesting thing in contrast to that because the follow-up scene is she's like go to a high school go party to, with your brother go to a party where they and, smoke and she's already where smoking dubs and drinking alcohol so like right, exactly she's already implied that she knows that uh that Peter's gonna drink alcohol so why don't you take your sister you know yeah that was a, a bit of uh I mean I guess you can chalk it up to Charlie's own uh, psychosis her own problems but that to me if you knew your older sibling or older uh, child 
was going to a party potentially with alcohol and you you're just gonna happenstance send your 13 year old with him right right no you're not i don't think so so but that scene when, when they get to the party that scene where that girl's chopping up walnuts is freaking that that shot is so funny to me i don't know what it is but it's just how she's joy i mean who goes to a party and chops up walnuts to make a cake first of all well first uh, of all once again we get a and that's part of the foreshadowing that he does in every scene because on the drive to the house we get a pan shot of the pole of the the, the, the infamous te telephone pole yeah so it, the car goes by and the it does a whip pan whoosh, and it stops on the pole and you're like, well, that's interesting. Why are we stopping on the pole? But well, once again, it's a foreshadow. Did you see what was on the pole? It's the symbol. The symbol Isn't of the cult. It? Yeah, it's the symbol of the cult. Uh, and we should mention, this is actually key to the whole movie, is Charlie is allergic to nuts. Yeah, that's the allergy. other foreshadow. Because you know immediately when they're chopping up nuts at the counter. It's, it, it, they, I mean, it's almost like he, he's like, we can't figure out a way to make this subtle. So let's just rub it, <laughs> rub their faces in it. Let's just go overboard. Because earlier in the here. film, the, the dad already, she was eating cake at the funeral. And they were like, is there nuts in that? They already told you. Right, right. So, yeah, the chocolate bar. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, done very well. And so I, I like how they just... It's like, we're not even going to try and make it subtle. We're just going to rub your face in it and bam, it, you know, it's right there. We're obviously going to have this nut allergy come into play here. And then uh, that's what happens. Peter goes back to smoke a bowl with his buddies. And then Charlie takes a, a bite of the cake that has the nuts in it. And boom, she goes into shock, into uh, what's it called? I just went blank. Is it anaphylactic shock? Anaphylactic shock, shock yes. So she Scary, goes. Scary, man. This is like, this is. The whole point, like from the second they walked into the party, I'm already terrified for Charlie. <clears throat> I'm just, it just. Can you imagine though? Like just for a second, I'm just saying like a 13 year old at a 16, 17, 18 year old party, high school kids, you're already have your own issues of whatever it might be. Like what? They really sent her? Like what? I, I think that goes right along with Annie being crazy. Because she, I mean, I think obviously she's worried about Charlie. And so, she, you know, I, I, I mean, I get it. When, you're, when your kid doesn't have friends, you want him to have friends. But don't, like, get him to go to a play date or something, you know. I don't know. Like, don't send him to, a, to some high school party. I mean, she's in junior high or whatever it is. Like, that's, that's the dumbest thing you can do. Yeah. It just seemed a little bit, I mean, it's fine. It's passable. I'm not trying to bash on it too much. It, makes, it, it is what it is. There is one intercut scene there where they're at the party and then a parallel edit back to Annie at the house. And it's kind of a spooky shot. This one stood out to me, which was, uh, it's, uh, this pullback shot. She's built a miniature of her mother standing at the, the door of their bedroom in a white gown. And then it cut, it does a pullback and you actually see Annie's back of her head staring at her mother. And she almost has a stare off with the model figure. And, and that also alludes to the fact that she might be a little bit crazy. But yeah. <laughs> I liked a lot of his shots, by the way. He, one thing he's good at in, in, is the, the camera movement and, and, and the ability to kind of manipulate the camera to help tell the story. I thought he's exceptional. He, is, he does exceptionally well at that. You know? And the other thing with, with the camera movement, he does it to help heighten the horror. He doesn't. I mean, there are no jump scares in this movie. There's only one jump scare I can think of, and it wasn't even a jump scare. There's a couple. I, I think there's two. Okay. I think there's two. Because I got scared on the 
the one we talked about, which is the gr- that little right because they do a cut there's no like big stinger there there's no like big to me it's just like oh my god there's something in the corner but he uses the edit he goes oh edit back edit back oh then it's there up here right um and then there's a couple of those at the end too but they're not yeah they're a little different than maybe a traditional jump scare yeah and i like that because all he needs to do to make you terrified is slowly turn the camera around right slowly and another thing, he's not afraid to hold on shots for a very long time. Well, he's here's, not a lot. Here's where I, I, I started going, okay, and, and this is a big comparison, but there is a lot of Kubrickian technical effects in the way that it's put together. Oh, yeah. You, you think he likes Kubrick a little bit? I like, think this that whole he, thing is like an homage to the show. Exactly. Okay, I'm not I, up in the <laughs> night there because yeah, I'm watching yeah. it going this. Uh, uh, I love Kubrick. So I'm watching this going, okay, there's a lot of nods to Kubrick, particularly like we talked about with the transitions, or not the transition, the camera movement, but additionally the transitions, you get a lot of those long cross dissolves, right? That whole- So many of them. Very he, much he the even, shining. I, I think that one shot of Tony Collette, when she's looking at uh, Peter's bed and his face is all covered in ants and he's all dead and it cuts back to her and she's doing, she's doing the Danny Torrance shocked face. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, that was like could not be more blatant, like homage to to The Shining. Yeah, I Loved think it. I think he's a, a fascinated with Kubrick. Nothing wrong with yeah. that. Nothing no, wrong with every, that. Lots of people are. I'm one of them. So, um, but but she eats the cake and then comes up. She can't breathe. She starts going into shock. He grabs her. He's racing in the car to get back or to take her to the hospital. She's in the back seat kicking. She can't breathe. That was terrifying too. I thought he did that scary. really well. It just makes yeah. he just made it scary and realistic, and you see the accelerator of the car, uh, the the you know the odometer or the speedometer, and uh, she's just going back and forth. Well, she rolls the window down to get air, I guess, and boom, yeah, bye bye. Well, and then there's a deer in the in the road. A deer in the that's so right. He, he swerves over swerves to the over. side of the road, and then you see the the, the telephone pole coming. And you're, you're thinking, no, no, they're going to swerve out of the way. There's no way. Like, this kid was built up in all the marketing and in the story so far as to be a, a key part of the story. Right. We're, it, we're still in the first act. There's no way. And then, bam. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Did they, did they really just kill this kid? What? And it's filmed exceptionally well. His, his layout of the scene, of the sequence, is really good. It builds yeah. the suspense, like you mentioned. You see the pole when it cuts back. We know they don't get back in time, and we see it go. What I loved, he sits, and then the car comes to a stop, and then he sits on Peter's face for a pretty long time. Because this is where I, I think, think Peter, the the actor um, Alex Wolf, does a real good job again at just like embodying that feeling of just shock and not even knowing what to do. Like, don't even dare look right, back. Right. He doesn't even dare look back. No. He, he, I, he's letting, he's letting, by, by, by shooting it this way, he's letting Peter sit with it. He's also letting us sit with just what just happened. Right. Like, he's letting the shock really sink in with us. And then the cut back to the master, and it's just pretty yes. long editing cuts, and then he so, just slowly drives off. I timed this. The shot of Peter right after this happened <laughs> is 40 seconds. He holds on Peter for 40 seconds. 
So that's Alex Wolf having to sit there and be in that moment for 40 seconds. He's probably longer. He drops a tear too, like a a real legitimate one that feels sickening. The entire, um, so I, I guess the entire sequence after, after she gets decapitated is a minute and, and 20 seconds. So it's like, it's just, and that's just them sitting. That's sitting. before he even drives off. Right. So there's, that's like, it, it, think about this. Like just sit there for two minutes and see how long that feels with nothing happening. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a very ballsy move. And I don't think you'd see that in any other horror movie. You can only do it if you've built up the atmosphere and the feeling of the characters enough and then shock them with a real tragic event. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that, and that, that's a big part of it. You've just hit us with this tragic scenario. And so let us sit with it while he sits with it. So it works for sure. And it, and it puts us in his shoes because he like, the longer we sit there, the longer we're like, well, what's going to, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And then he just drives off. Like you said, he just drives off. And then it gets Kubrickian again, because for me, when Alex gets home or uh, Peter, Peter gets home, the long shot of the hallway, this, the close up. So like a long wide shot of a hallway to the bed. And this was why I was putting the two together for me in my head was then it, then the shot of his head falling, like hitting on the pillow, the, 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 the side shot. And then the long dissolve of the doorway in his face. Like it's, it felt so Kubrickian to me. I was like, this is the shining right here. It really is. Yeah. It does. And the score even kind of feels like the shining. Yes. Like it's just kind of droning at times. Uh, Cause it's yeah, just done it, so well. And it's a triple imposition. He's got the hallway with Peter laying down. Then he's got the shot of him with this big head shot, you know, the close up. Um, and it's just long dissolve. It's a cool shot, man. I, I like stuff like that when they're using transitions artistically, but also with a little bit of narrative purpose. So, and then the next sequence is pretty much the same thing because it 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 dissolves. If I'm not mistaken, it dissolves into him just being in the morning, just still lying wide that's awake. That's right. That's right. You hear uh, the worst. Okay, the worst part. Before I go into this, the worst part of this whole sequence to me is when he walks in the door. And you hear Annie and Steven say, oh, good, they're home. Okay. You know, it's like, it's almost like now we can go to sleep because the kids, the kids. Oh, I didn't hear them. They said that? Yes. They said that. But they don't check on them. They just stay in bed? I guess. I guess so. I don't know. I'm thinking I'm checking on my kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're teenagers. So I kind of, I mean, I kind of understand it. Uh, I don't know. I'd still, I'd still but, probably, if it was my daughter, I'd still probably be out of bed. Like, how'd it go? What's up? You're yeah, good. Yeah. But to me, that that's the most tragic part of the entire thing. It's just that false sense of safety. And you know what is in that car right now. You know what's sitting in that car. Right. And they're just like, oh, thank God we can finally sleep. And when it transitions <laughs> to the morning, he doesn't even bother to show anything. He just keeps on Peter's face. And then you hear auto, you hear the sound, you hear the audio oh, of her. And just the scream, her scream is great. And it is another, another part I like, and this is the horror fanatic in me. Is you that love the si- decapitated head. You just well, loved it. Well, that's the thing, because you're sitting there and you're like, okay, he's not going to show it. They're not going to show it. They're not going to show it. Bam, hard cut. Like, it's not like, no warning, nothing. And it, it doesn't even fit into the story at that point. It's just like, we're going to show you this grotesque head with ants crawling all over it on the side of the road. It's just the horror lover in me loved 
that moment because there's no reason to show that other than you just want to show some cool gore. Well, and uh, it, the way that it, the prosthetic and how they built it, the model, like it's very cool. It's, it's, very, it's done very well because you even see the smashed – it's gory, but you see the smashed in face. Oh, it's so bad. And it's so gross. Going all over it, which come into play later because that's another horror kind of scene with the ants with Peter later on. Um, but, but yeah, it's great. And then it's just, it's basically them just trying to, it's just basically showing Annie just in dire straits. She's gone. She's lost it. Yes. Basically. And, uh, her husband, Steve's trying to help get it together. And at the same time, Peter's basically gone now too. Like Peter and Annie are both out. They've checked out. And they're both feeling tremendous guilt, obviously Peter for obvious reasons, but also Annie because she, because Charlie didn't want to go to the party. That was the other thing. It wasn't just like, oh, take your sister. It was like, Charlie, you're going to this party. Right. She forced her to go to the party. Yeah. So uh, there's tremendous guilt from both of them. And he brings that up later. Yes. In that fight we were talking about. He brings that up. Um, yes. The night of the funeral, which, by the way, let's give a little shout out to uh, – to uh, the cemetery and the, the, the beautiful Wasatch Mountains. It's Larkin. It, it, you know, Larkin Cemetery, the Wasatch Mountains in the background. I know right where that's at. Yeah, me too. Um, this, whole, this whole thing, you know, we live in Utah, in Salt Lake City, and this whole thing was shot in Utah. And, and I even, you know, we've worked with one of the actors before, and so it's, it's fun. It's fun to, to know where the locations are and see that. Yeah, it's cool they shot it here. Um, and I wonder what the tie-in there was, if it was uh, just – some kind of tax incentive or uh what the big the thing or just the aesthetic because it's filmed up a lot of it's filmed up in summit uh in park city area so so what i read was um they it was supposed to be it was supposed to be uh like snow covered and everything but then because of the scheduling of the actors they had to they had to shoot it in the in the spring and summer but ari aster really liked the imposing mountains because he said they're gorgeous and they're beautiful, but they're also very ominous. Yeah, I love and, that. And creepy. So I love that. Uh, they said that once they found that that cemetery, they knew they knew. Shout out to Utah. Utah is a great place to film. Anybody that wants to film in Utah should. There's a lot of cool stuff here. Oh, it's great. It's it's beautiful. It can it can double as a lot of different things. It can. It can be anywhere. Yeah. So uh, she's grieving. He's grieving. But here's the turning point, Alan. Uh, he starts Peter's at, I don't know why he's back in school in the first place. It feels very soon for him. I know, to be right? Back. Come on now. I, I kept thinking like, dude, there's no way he's going back to school. No, I was like, come on, that's too soon. But nonetheless, he is. He's smoking a bowl or a dube under the bleachers with his buddies. And, and I will say one of the buddies, it's, uh, his name is Austin R. Grant. He was in, uh, we know Austin Hodgson, who's got to get his ass on this podcast. He was uh, in Austin's short film that he did. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we've worked with him. It's fun. I love it. It's um, fun to see that, that kind of success. Yeah. And the, uh, also, uh, the, the therapist, the male therapist at the first therapy session, mm -hmm. Jared Phillips. And I've done a film with Jared. He's a good guy. Nice. Yeah. yeah so see, it's, cool. it's cool. It's cool to have locals doing cool stuff. Yeah. Um, but they're under the bleachers and this is where it starts to change up. Right. Like, uh, for me, is this the transitional beginning of the transition, I should say, right? Because he starts not being able to breathe, right? So he's having a hard time breathing. And it's not 
Munchausen disease, but he's feeling the effects of what his sister felt before she died. That's how I yeah. saw it. Yeah, almost like sympathy pains or something like that. I don't know what you would call it. Right. Uh, but when you say transition, you're talking about because... Uh, I'm talking about a literal taking over of his body. By Payman. By the, the god. Yeah, the, the Payman god. One of the eight kings of hell. The, this is the, 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 the gate of hell starting to open. Yes, exactly. I, that's how I see it. Like it, because it, later on we'll see that his body becomes crucial to whatever the story is from the from the the payment God, right? Because payment wasn't Charlie. <laughs> payment wasn't Charlie. That's why the grandma loved her and loved a baby here. But we'll find out later that payment pre prefers a male body, right? A male vessel, I right. guess you should say. And uh, because Annie wouldn't let peter near his mom when he was young she had to she had to go with annie and now or not annie uh charlie, charlie. and now that charlie's dead they're gonna try and get payment into peter right right and uh simultaneously while he's experiencing that that night charlie goes to the meeting again and meets is it ann no it's joan yeah annie goes to the meeting and meets joan that's that's right and Joe becomes a pivotal character of which I'm not entirely sure of. And I'm sure we'll get to that as we start moving along. Tell, take us to kind of the last 30 minutes, basically, like the last 20, 30 minutes. What happens between now and then that, that becomes crucial for us to... We already talked about the scene to me that's the most... It's the most tragic scene in the film, which is the film of, the, of Annie and Peter bickering and yelling at each other and kind of blaming each other for Charlie's death. That's what, to me, makes Astor such a good director is because he takes a, a, a horror film like this, but there's such a family dynamic there. Man, it feels real and authentic and very sad. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, I'm not big on family dramas. Like, I'm not, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't work. But I was, I was absolutely dialed in on this one, and I was along for the ride, and I felt every single ounce of pain that they were feeling. You know, it, it really are sucked into everything that's going on. Basically, uh, the main, the main, there are a couple main things that happen um, between Charlie's death and then what we'll get to later. And the main, one of the main things is we're really dealing with the family dealing with grief right. and guilt and all that kind of stuff. And you're seeing it happen and you're seeing it to Peter and you're seeing it to Annie. And you even see it with Steven a little bit. Like Steven's kind of for, a, a forgotten character at times. He is really trying to keep his family together, but they do include a scene where he's looking at Charlie's uh, drawing book and he weeps over it, you know, and it's, it's like, let's not forget that, that he's, he's got to be the strong one. He's got to be the one to hold everyone together, but he's hurting too. So it's really tough. The other thing is Joan teaches Annie that you can communicate with your, your dead loved one. And I think that's the big one, which is Annie's form or her outlet for her grieving is the hope or possibility that she can communicate with her daughter beyond death. Yes. And what did you think of the scene when, when Joan was, sorry to interrupt you. What did you think of the, the scene when Joan was, was talking to her, her dead grandson with the chalkboard? Um, it, <laughs> I thought the acting was good. I thought Joan did a good job. I thought I liked uh, her character. Um, I liked 
but it felt a little bit. I don't know. It felt a little bit screwbally, spooky, kooky, spooky, kooky, spooky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For our horror month, that's a great term. It felt a little kooky, spooky, outside of everything else we had kind of seen up to that point. Um, but I also get it because I think at some point you've got to display that there's a possibility that there's something deeper and darker there. Uh, I just thought it was kind of kooky because Joan's a little bit of a a kooky bird. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's – I loved it because it was like a, a light in a dark night because when, when Charlie gets decapitated, like I went into this movie thinking it was a horror film, like a straight-up horror film. You know, I love that stuff. When that happened, I was like, dude, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I wanted to happen. I didn't want to see children – you know, it wasn't nothing. There was nothing scary about that. It was just violent and terrible, you know. And yeah. so and then to see the family dealing with it, it's like this is too realistic. This is not fun. I don't like it. I want you know, I wanted scary stuff. And so when we finally get to a point where we're starting to get to creepy stuff, I'm like, oh, OK, finally, like now I can have a little fun with this thing. This thing's been too heavy. It's like been an oppressive force hanging around me. And now I can kind of relax a little bit. Yeah. Which is weird to say that I'm relaxing at the scary parts. I, well, it's kooky scary, like you said. So yeah, it's yeah, not as though right. you're frightened because it, that scene to me was okay. But cut some, one of the subsequent scenes that follows not too long after that is the, the kind of dream sequence with the ant face. That to me, I loved that. I loved the where, she, the, where Annie's dreaming. She's already explained, by the way, in the story that she's been a sleepwalker. And one of the times she sleepwalked, she threw lighter fluid all over her children and paint paint thinner paint thinner that's right all over her children and then struck a match and woke her up and peter remembers that and in some ways has animosity towards her because of it rightfully so and so now she's sleepwalking again in her dream it's a dream i love the dream scenario and she comes out and he's like you know that conversation is also very uncomfortable even though it's in a dream sequence because she comes into the room dream at first and uh, well, well, you don't know it's a dream. You're right, but right. It, 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 that's that that dialogue back and forth is extremely uncomfortable. They start talking about how she didn't want to have him. She did everything possible. Oh my and, God! When she when she says, "I didn't want to be your mother," I didn't want to be your mother. And she immediately covers her mouth because she didn't. She shouldn't be saying this to her kid. And he goes, "Well, why did you have me?" And she goes, "I tried to stop it." Like, oh my God! What the hell is going on right now? Yeah, it was this a. Is, Jesus. She comes out and says, I tried to have a miscarriage. And you're like, yeah, Damn, like this is, let's this hold is some brutal let's hold stuff, some, man. Let's hold some shit back. <laughs> like I, I can't. And again, this is when I'm like, I didn't sign up for this kind of stuff, man. I just wanted a fun, scary horror movie where I jump every once but in a while. But that's also very shining esque because at the moment that it gets real crazy, they both become profusely wet and sweating. And then it starts to make its way known that it's a dream. Because she, of course, does the jump scare awake. Well, and the way I took it was, it wasn't that they were getting sweaty. It was that they were both doused in, in paint. In the, in that's it. right. They were, because she had, yeah, they, you're right. You're right. Because then you probably, see a flame below yeah, her. flame. That's right. That's yeah. right. And then uh, she wakes up for real. And this is where she does her first seance. She tries to call for her daughter. And then she starts waking everybody up in the house. And now we know she's really batshit crazy. No. Right. I mean, we right. already had our assumptions, but now she's running around waking up Peter, uh, waking up Steve, telling him to come downstairs. 
and we can communicate with Charlie through a seance because Joan taught me how to do it. Right. And, um, yeah, it's, it, she's, it's uncomfortable, but you can tell that. So Steven wants to have no part of this. So she's telling them like, we got, we, we can talk to Charlie, we can do this. And she's going a million miles an hour and Steven wants nothing to do with it. But Peter does because he's feeling guilt too. So he really wants a chance to talk to Charlie. And so he's like, I'll stay for this. Yeah. And then they do it. The candle starts flaming when it was unlit before. And then she starts speaking in Charlie's voice. Yeah. And I, I think that's the extent for the most part of what happens in this scene. Other than at that point, Peter is not interested anymore in, in this thing. Cause you were saying how he was initially, but after that, when she starts speaking in the, in the child's voice, he's saying, make it stop. He doesn't yeah, want a part of it anymore. This is, this is one of the parts where I was starting to uh, there, There's a couple of parts in here where he sounds like a two-year-old kid. Right. I mean, and I understand kind of reverting back to that in a very terrifying moment. Uh, you know, I want my mommy type thing, but he, I mean, it's, it, it's overplayed. I, I, I think they shouldn't have gone that route. Make it stop. Make it stop. He sounds like a little kid. I think he even says, mommy, make it stop, Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. But that's kind of the extent of what happens. But then we get into, uh, there's, there is one thing. Uh, it shows a, this is, this is why the models become so interesting. I'm not sure how they all tie in. Because after that scene, there's a scene where it cuts to, it's nighttime still. And it cuts to the models. And there's the car with Peter in it and a decapitated Charlie. She actually built a model of the death scene. Crazy. I mean, obviously, this is a way that, that she feels like it's kind of therapy for her, therapeutic, and she's trying to work through it through this, but she can't understand why it might upset Peter. Because when Steven says, what is he going to think when he sees this? You can't do that. Yeah, the dad's like, And she Whoa. goes, this isn't about him. You know, it's very, this is, anyone who's known someone um, with severe mental illness, uh, you there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of stuff where it's like they don't understand how this this thing is wrong and they're not concerned about anyone else like and it's 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 like it occurs to them for the first time that this might affect someone else you know right and so it to me that rang very true because there's also uh when, when peter calls at this point uh peter no peter's having problems at school and then steve calls annie and's like you you know I'm trying to protect my son. You got to stop doing these things. She starts breaking down all the miniatures and you go, she has like a little episodic attack. And then uh, Steve comes home. There's a cut shot to a model that's built of Peter in his bedroom with a decapitated head. <laughs> I didn't notice that. How did I miss that one? It's uh, when he walks into when Steve walks in and she's uh, she's broke all the miniatures. Right. And she's having that episode after they had an argument on the phone about trying to protect their son. There's a shot and he looks over, uh, Steve looks over and there's a decapitated Peter in a bed. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> it's a quick, it's a quick <laughs> shot. And then oh. it, it cuts back to him and his face is just like, Oh my Lord. <laughs> He's, and then is this the part? Cause at that uh, point he sleeps on the couch. It shows yeah, him sleeping sleep on, on the, the couch. Cause he's like, okay, he's done, man. This marriage is over at this point. He's, like this is, this is getting too intense. Um, and then, I, and I can't remember what, what, at what point in the sequence of events this happens, but uh, she kind of finds out that Joan uh, kn knew her mother. 
Yeah. And was close with her mother. <laughs> and um, so that disturbs her. Then she, she, I think this comes a little bit later, but she tries to burn Charlie's um, drawing book. And the drawing book was, start, ever since she conjured Charlie, there were now pictures being drawn uh, with no one, you know, no one holding the pencil, essentially, and and pictures automatically being drawn in this book. Yeah. So there, she there burns is, it. There is one scene before this, before because we're we're the, where Peter wakes up from a dream and sees Charlie in the corner of his oh, room. Oh yeah, God, it's so creepy. And it's so good. Ugh. It's so well done. And oh, it's, it's so creepy. It's it's uh, her head starts to lean forward and it falls into the shadow of the light, and then it comes out on the light side of the the hard shadow, and it's a ball rolling. Yeah. Because it falls and it hits the ground. It's and you think so, it's, it's her head hitting the ground. It's going to be her head and then the ball. Yeah. I just love oh, that dude. scene. I thought that was great. <laughs> so creepy. So creepy. Uh, but yeah, so she burns um, She burns Charlie's book. And as soon as she throws it in the fire and it starts burning, she starts burning. Her arm starts burning. So, yeah, I wasn't sure about this. I wasn't 100% convinced. Oh, on, I got it all figured out. Don't even worry On the about linkage. It. I, I mean, got it all she's linked. Out. The book is the living link to Charlie. And yes. So, so like, like Joan had, you know, in order to, to conjure your dead loved one, you got to have some, an object that belonged to them and that's your link to them. And so, but for some, I mean, for some reason now the book is linked to her. And so if the book burns, we're thinking that she's going to burn. So she can't destroy the book because then it's going to destroy her type of thing. Right. Um, so, and then we go to Peter at school again, back at school. And he has a serious episode. Yeah, why is this kid not doing online education? <laughs> Our kids are pros at it by now. I know why, yeah. but I don't get like this kid's been through some serious shit. This, yeah, I mean, take a take a week or two off at least. <laughs> get your head straight. Go to therapy. Let's let's get back to the to usual. But um, so he's at school and he starts doing the little. Is this where he does the little cluck thing that Charlie was doing? So she clucks her tongue. Charlie, when she's alive, he's been hearing it just before that. He's heard the clicking of the tongue, which Charlie did when she was. Yeah. And can I just, okay, I'm going to just say this. The second time I saw this in the theater, like, dude, every single freaking person in the theater was doing it throughout the movie. Like every time it got darker, it was the most annoying fear going experience I've ever had in my life. I would hate that so bad. Oh God. I wanted to burn the place down. So frustrating. Reminds me of the time where a buddy of mine that I used to work with got so, cause got so riled up that the guy in front of him had his cell phone, had his (laughs) cell phone lit up. And my buddy's like six, four karate black belt grabs, leans over, grabs the phone and throws it in the aisle. Oh my God, dude. Nice. And I was like, I mean, something I would never do, but. Right. But dude, if you're six, four and you're a black belt, you can get away with it. I that. was laughing my ass off. Dude, of course. It's just inconsiderate. Like who goes to movies and does this kind of stuff? Drives me crazy. I mean, I understand like you want to ease the tension a little bit with the, the clucking, but I'd be so it was nonstop. There had to have been people yelling too. shut up. Yeah, it was, it was, it was not fun. Which only all. exacerbates the whole situation, makes right. it worse. And the worst part is it was happening, obviously, when it would get super tense, right? Because you want to ease the tension. You want to bring a little levity to it. Hate it and already. And so at the end, the best part of the movie, when it's all creepy and scary, You're everyone's clucking their tongues, oh, trying my. to be funny. Oh. God, drove me crazy. I, anyway. Oh, I'm, <laughs> so, he, so he hears the cluck of the tongue, the, and I hope that's picking up on the mic. And then he, he 
he's basically oh we we forgot that the one scene that's super important it's when he's eating lunch outside and he sees joan across the street she yells like some shit woman. at him get and out she yells, she yells get out get out she she says peter i expel you get out get out and you're thinking what the hell is this woman doing she's insane she seemed so together earlier like she seemed concerned and like friendly and and not disheveled and, and batshit insane she seemed kind of normal, she's a cultist you know? i mean now oh, she totally now is. we know yeah. right and when she yells get out then i started putting some pieces together like okay even more so like peter his physical body means something to this crazy cult you know what i right. mean right yeah so at this point do you, did you realize there was a cult uh I wasn't convinced. Because we, we'd it, seen the pictures of, of Annie's mom. It, it was being more towards, yeah, a few minutes later, even more so, started putting it together when she starts going through her mom's album. And you see the symbol and you see the gathering of people. And you're like, okay, that's a cult. That's clearly a cult. That right. point I knew. Because okay. there, there's no way you can't. If you're paying attention at all, it's not hard to decipher that there's some crazy cultish type shit going on um, because the pictures of her mom with Joan and then the whole thing with the rugs and the embroidered rugs and the whole thing with the symbol. And, and then you start. So it, yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, it took a while, but I'm starting to figure out that there's some kind of paganistic ritual going on. <laughs> okay. You know? Okay. Cause I'm not sure it's been so long since I saw it for the first time. I can't remember where I started piecing things together. It was but, probably in that area where yeah. Joan starts going. As soon as Joan starts going crazy and we see the album, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, so then Peter's at school and he uh, is, he's starting to be overtaken by Paymon. Pay, is it Payment or Paymon? I don't know how to say I always it. Say, I was saying Paymon, so we'll stick with that. Okay, I'll say Paymon. All right. And uh, he, he smashes his head into the desk repeatedly, busts his nose, uh, and then starts screaming. And this kid is already the weird kid at school because of everything that happened with the sister and the party. And so now, I mean, I just can't imagine the ostracization that would come if he ever went back to school at this point. Um, but th so then Steven picks him up and now, now we're entering. But there's another thing, another where you start to feel sympathetic for Steven. Cause when he goes to pick him up and he drives him home, and they stop at a light, oh, yeah. and he just yeah. breaks down in tears. And you're like, this poor guy cannot catch a break. Oh, God, man, I just I feel so bad. And Gabriel Byrne is so likable that it's just so tough to watch him go through this. It really is. Especially, I mean, if you've ever known anyone who's who's been in a relationship with crazy people or had crazy people. I don't want to say crazy. That's that's insensitive. Uh, people with, with severe mental illness, uh, it, you know, surrounding them, and they kind of feel trapped. It's it's tough to watch. Yeah, it's, it's tough sad. to see them go through that. It's so tough. it's. It's really, it's really too bad. And he gets home. But, but while he's going to get him, this is where also where Annie f discovers a body in the attic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this so is important a, because we see them. It's a decapitated body in the attic. Yep. And the, the cult symbol is written in above blood on the wall in blood. So now I definitely knew. Like I kind of started piecing it together. But now you, if you're not piecing it together at this point, then... You're probably just stupid. <laughs> yeah. I'm just yeah. kidding. So, something, something culty is going on here for sure. Um, so uh, Stephen gets home with Peter. Peter's in bed. 
Annie's going insane, basically saying, there's a body in the attic. Or no, she said, I need you to go upstairs, up in the attic and see what is up there. And he is just like dragging his feet, just like, oh my God. And she goes, it might be my mother. I'm not sure, but there's a body up there and you got to go up there and you got to see it. And he's like, you're, you're, you're the headless corpse of your mother's in the attic. Okay, whatever you say. And so he kind of slowly pulls down the ladder of the attic and he goes up and obviously he sees the dead body and freaks out and he comes down. He's like, why didn't you call the police? <laughs> and she says, the, the police can't help us. <coughs> and she's just going crazy. And she's saying, I know how to stop this. I'm the only one who can stop this. Uh, you know, another, another very common thing with people with mental illness is they think that they're the only person who can, who can orchestrate, you know, a certain thing, a certain event. Uh, and she kind of says her goodbyes and she says to, to Steven, she hands him the book charlie's book and says you need to throw this in the fire um and he's just he looks just dis disheveled he looks dejected. like oh he he he. the other thing because she's been going off about the the album and with about joan and the symbol and the necklace around their neck and the pictures of her mom and like i didn't know they knew each other and now here's the book and you need to get rid of the book if you don't get rid of the book peter's gonna die so at least she like he's like She's like, please throw this in the fire. And he's like, what the, f he just, he like has no idea on how to compartmentalize any of this. And rightfully he, so. Oh, absolutely. He just, he's done, you know, and you can see him. You can actually visibly see the point where he, he decides done, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not indulging the insanity. She needs help. This is a family, just not even fractured, just totally broken at this point. And I can't do it anymore. And so she, he starts to walk over to the fireplace and he stops and he turns around and he, he's like, I'm not doing this with you anymore. I'm not, this is, this is too much. So she takes the book, throws it in the fire. Instead of her bursting into flames, he bursts into flames. I didn't he get goes it. Up I didn't like get kindling. It. Oh, I, 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 again, explain. It'll all make sense. It'll all make sense. Explain why he bursts into flames. No, I don't know. Who knows? But I'll tell you why he does later. I don't know, like, in the logic of what's going on in the movie, but I'll tell you why I think he did. Okay. Um, and then and now we go. Now it's insane. From the second and from the second Peter wakes up in his bed, which is, I believe, the next. Yes, yeah, the next scene. The next scene. It, it, well, for, no, first, we should see. We see Annie snap, like, fully snap, finally. Like, she's watching her husband being burned alive. And at one point, she just snaps and she almost goes numb. Like, it looks like she just goes numb. Oh, this is, this is also where, and I could be wrong here, I swear the spectral light comes back. I think you're right. I, and I, I think you're right. And so I think, I think Paymon is now inside of Annie. That's okay. That's what I thought. Because I swear, I, I, I have to double check, but I swear that the light comes back after Peter gets burned. Yes. And here is where, when, when we get to this next scene, when I saw this movie the first time, I was thinking, finally, like, fi now, now I'm in a good place. Now I'm in a comfortable, fun horror movie place. We have not been there at all up until this point, but now, you mean, now I can relax fully. When, when Peter gets burned? No, when, 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 uh, when Peter wakes up. So after Steve gets burned, yeah. yeah. But when Peter wakes up and it's the wide shot of him sitting on his bed, and you can see Annie in the corner. In the corner, yeah. Up on the top of his root of, of his ceiling in the corner. That's when I was like, okay, all right, now we're getting to some fun stuff. 
you know, like, because before it was too real. I didn't like it. And now, now this is so not real that it's, it's just horror. It's just fun. And so this is when I was, I was really enjoyed the movie and to see her kind of float, walk out of the room. Like, it's just the way he frames everything is so scary. And, and Peter basically goes up to the attic and discovers the body. Right, because he gets well, chased up. He gets chased by his mom, who's gone insane. <laughs> and, and here's where the jump scare is when Annie pops out and starts chasing him. <laughs> this this is the only the only jump scare I could see other than that. Other I one. just hated that he ran into the attic. That's a cliche horror move. Totally. Why totally. are you going into the most secluded place in the house? He literally runs past the front door to go upstairs <laughs> to go up into the attic. That's right. He does. <laughs> yeah. And also um, the one jump scare here too, when he when he's um I believe he's still in his room and he looks back and sees the crazy naked dude in his closet. Oh yeah, super creepy. That was creepy shit. The, the naked people, super creepy. But you're right, he does. You're right, he runs past the the damn front door and runs into the attic and closes it. And then in the attic, he discovers the flies and the smell and everything going on. But the body's gone. The, the candles. Right. Uh, yeah. The body's gone, but it's got a, a dust around it with candles, seance candles around it, uh, with a picture of his eyes cut out. Yes. A photo. Super. A photo. Oh, God, man. Just like, what would you do? Like, you're running from your mom who's, who's lost her mind, and she's chasing you to kill you. He starts going, wake up. He thinks he's in a dream. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> this is probably my favorite shot in the entire movie. When he, he just hears banging on the attic door. And so you think it's just her pounding on the door, but then it cuts to outside and she's banging. Her, she's on the ceiling, banging her head very rapidly against the door. I thought that was so cool. How did she get in the attic? She's she's a, a king of hell right now. Like because one minute she's banging on the outside door. Then the next minute she's up floating in the attic, decapitating herself. I think logic's kind of flown out the window at this point. Yeah, there's naked dudes in the closet. And- <laughs> yeah, there are naked people all over the house. Like, just it's just very strange. That and, is a disturbing but, scene, though, when she starts chopping her he- own head off. Love it. Love it. She's got piano wire, and she's digging it through the back of her neck to get to the front of her neck. Great. I love it. Great it's scene. It's just so... And the look on her face, she's floating in the air doing this. Yeah. It's so cool. And doing it's it so just cool. so harshly and so rapidly. You yes. Know? Which yeah. causes... Which is enough for Peter to be like, I'm out. Fuck it. Then he jumps out the window. <laughs> he pulls a, a Sally from Texas. He pull, I was just going to say, he pulls a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just yeah. jumps out a two-story window. <laughs> totally fine. No big deal. But I do love because the camera goes outside of the window with him. Yeah. And you still hurt, hear her sawing away at her head, and then you hear the head come off you hear and hit the, the ground upstairs. You hear the thud. The thud. It's so cool. It's just it's done so well. And, um, and then here, once again, after you hear the thud, this is where you see the spectral light and it enters into Peter's body. The spectral light, right? And he basically comes alive again and comes awake and looks over at this treehouse, which we've neglected to mention so far. But there's a treehouse outside where Charlie always went that was like her place. And uh, when Paymon apparently enters Peter's body, he looks over and people are like decapitated people are like floating into the treehouse. Yeah, his mom's decapitated body floats yeah, up. Yeah, it's her mom. Silently floats up into the uh, into the treehouse. And then he he follows the body up there and he sees all the naked people 
on their knees, they're kneeled down with their foreheads against the ground. Um, well, but as he walks to the treehouse, there's the shot of him looking into the woods and seeing like naked people, just yes. a bunch of wieners flying out, you know, just a bunch and of this penises. Is when he does, this is when he does the, uh, the, the tongue click. And then he starts clicking his tongue. So the, the, the transformation is complete, essentially. And he enters the house. And then at that point, there's a weird paganistic. Uh, it's almost like a, a Jesus Christ looking thing because it's got like a crown on with like spears coming out and a cane. And it's a and long hair and kind of a it's the Paymon God. And then a bird cage next to it. Uh, he's all jacked up, decapitated heads, kneeling down, and like it's like, uh, what the hell is going on? It's the weirdest thing ever. Was Charlie's body there? I don't think I can't remember. Um, I don't think so. I was so, trying to pull it up to look real it. fast, I don't, but I don't think so. I know I there's know, two. Uh, I know that the mom and I think maybe the grandma. Uh, yeah, the grandma are both there. Yeah. Yes, and they're they're positioned in a way where they're. If they had heads, their heads would be yeah. <laughs> on the ground as well, kneeling down. And you just hear Joan's voice. And this is where she explains that he is he is Paimon, uh, one of the eight kings of hell. And he has now taken his final body. And uh, Yeah, we've corrected your first female body. And yes. now you have the right one. So Charlie was Paimon the whole time. Right. Essentially. Right. And now, uh, now he's going to be worshipped and... And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, they go, we reject the Trinity, and we pray to you, great Paimon, and then that's the end of the movie. Yeah, and they all say, hail Paimon. That's right, hail Paimon, and then it's a and, cut. And you can't see it. I, I got the wallpaper. Oh, you know what? My skeleton's even covering it, but my wallpaper on the TV tonight says, hail Paimon. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. Love um, and that's Hereditary. There it is, Hereditary by Ari Aster. Okay, Alan, now we've talked through it, discussed some things we've liked, some things that were a little bit off. Break this shit down for me because that was my first original question going into this podcast. Okay. Let me hear what you got. I'll tell you exactly what I think is happening. Go for I'm, it. I'm, I'm pretty I'm very curious. It's, it's not a stretch. Like It's not some crazy thing. I, it's, it's all telegraphed. It all seems like it's there. To me, I'm pretty certain. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty certain this is what's going on. Um, Again, not a stretch. It's not like some weird, I'm not reaching for anything. I All the cool stuff that happened in this movie, all the creepy stuff, all the, uh, the supernatural stuff didn't really happen. None of that happened. This is a family struggling with mental illness. And that's all it is. Uh, there is, she, you know, the mom passed down the mental illness to Annie and Annie passed it on to her children. That's why... Uh, Steven is the only one who's not, I mean, he's the only rational person, the only mm. person who doesn't have this and he's seeing it for what it is. We are seeing all of these events happening through the eyes of someone who maybe schizophrenia. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's bipolar. I, I don't know, but that's what we're seeing. We are seeing people's guilt, um, they're creating and manifesting these elaborate situations to assuage their guilt uh, rather than admit that a tragic, horrible, just god-awful accident happened. It's easier for the brain to accept that someone orchestrated it. 
that it was planned and orchestrated by a group of, of uh, by a cult, essentially, and that they made this thing happen. I, I, I really think that's the entire key to the entire movie. I think that's the whole story. Um, let's see. So Steven didn't really burn? No, Annie burned Steven. Okay. Because she's insane. She's crazy. Yeah. And I think she, you see her. I think, I think her sanity started to break a little bit when her mom died. And then it totally just shattered the second that Charlie died. And I think uh, that's when you see Peter. The same thing happened to Peter. I think he, his reality shattered as well. It's easier to admit that there is a cult living in the treehouse who is going to worship you uh, then admit that your mother killed herself after <laughs> trying to murder you. Like, to, to, to me, a rational brain would have a very hard time trying to process that. Uh, and yeah. it's just easier. <laughs> yeah. That's fair to say. So, yeah, exactly. So to me, th that's, that's the entire movie for me. That's what I think is happening. The miniatures, I think, are used very well because as a viewer, from the very first shot, it's a very, it's a long shot. The camera pans around and then it zooms into a miniature and we are inside the miniature. So we don't know. We're again, we're seeing the world through Annie's eyes, through Peter's eyes, through Charlie's eyes to a little bit. We don't know what's real and what's not. Are we in a miniature right now or are we actually in the real house? To me, that's that's the narrative uh, purpose behind the, the miniatures, because it's just a little subtext. It's just what's real and what's not real. How do we know? Because there's so many times when it looks like we're in a miniature, like the, the, the cinematography's done so well that it looks like it is. The, the set was built as a miniature almost. I mean, not as a miniature, but it was the entire house, the interior of the house was built on a soundstage up in Park City so that they could have cameras above the house and, and they could remove walls and, and make it unrealistic. So to me, that's what the miniatures symbolize. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we had there. I'm um, following you. I'm following you. Uh, yeah. So I just, I think it's them trying to deal with their guilt. I think it's them trying to not have to take responsibility for their actions. Not necessarily because they're trying to skirt responsibility, but it's just, they can't, they cannot accept the weight of, of what has happened. Yeah. So it's all based in, so you're saying everything's based and rooted in mental illness Yes, that's what I think. And the horrific and so does, but Charlie gets de decapitated. That's real. Yes, okay. that's real. And then, but I mean, even Charlie is seriously mentally ill. Yeah, you don't cut birds' heads off. No, she, and, she's got a scissor and she, it's not even like, like she snapped it off. Like she literally took some scissors that yeah. she just had on her at school, by the way, in the yard and, and slowly snipped the bird's head off. To make some kind of grotesque doll or toy or something. And yeah, to I me, it's, a, it, it's almost a little bit like trying to emulate mom because mom makes little miniatures. Yeah, she's I think making little that's toys. a good comparison because she's always making weird little, little doodads. Doodads. Yes. But they're, they're, they're gross. They're weird. Yeah. Uh, like, that's okay. I'm going to – I can see where you're going with this. I like this, uh, this analysis, this interpretation. Um, Give me a summation and just a review. Your rating on this film. I love this movie, man. I do. It's hard. It's nah. a hard watch. It's a hard watch, but I do. I love it. Um, 
I went, I, I was trying really hard to find reasons, uh, to not rate it as high as Chainsaw. And it's not, it's not even, it's not the same thing as, as Chainsaw in regards to my favorite movies, but it's just, it's just so well done. I think Ari Aster is a phenomenal director. I think what he did here was great. And for, and again, we didn't even mention, I think you did in the intro, but this is his first feature. And I've wa- I watched today, I haven't seen Midsummer, which was the second feature. I need to see that. Uh, but I watched today all but one of his short films that he did before Hereditary. And they're not even close to being on the same level. Like, I don't know how I, they raised the money to do this. I don't know how they got this greenlit because it's a very ambitious project and it's done on not that much of a budget. I just don't know how he got the reins to be able to do this. I really don't because it, it, it's just so ambitious. His, uh, his earlier work wasn't, wasn't up to this part. I mean, it's good. A lot of it's good, but it's not nearly up to this. Right, right. Like the short films don't quite hold up in comparison. Yes. I haven't seen Midsummer's either. Um, but he has done, like you mentioned, a few, uh, short films. Yeah. I mean, his, his background's a little bit interesting in itself is that he was born in New York city, uh, and then did some moving around and ended up in New Mexico. And he ended up going to, uh, I believe like the Santa Fe college of arts or something like that down in New Mexico. And then was, uh, accepted into AFI, which is a, which is crazy because AFI is kind of the predominant film school in the nation, right? So uh, something between there and and getting some development deal with A24 is what kind of catapulted him into being able to do this movie. I think also what would happen is you can, what you know, getting the right connections and finding somebody who uh, reads, if they read the script, like you can be a good writer and just not be noticed. And then you write a script like this and get it in the right hands and someone reads the script and they go, this is really good. It's really well written. I think that's a big part of it too, you know, where they're going to believe in the story because they read it and that's really well, like you had mentioned earlier, like it's a really well-written movie. It is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's very, it's always kind of very uh, interesting uh, to kind of see where they, where they came from. I thought he did a great job um, and it's a, it's a, it's a good movie. Tell me, uh, wh- wh- where are you putting this? You're saying you're not going to go as high as Chainsaw. Chainsaw went nine. That's the highest I've ever given any movie. So what are you coming in? Even with in? all its flaws. What are you coming uh, in? So I'm going to come in, because there are some things that I didn't talk about, but there are some things that, that would drag it down a little bit. I'm going to go 8.4 bird heads. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty good though. That's good. Especially for me. That's really good. That's pretty good. Um, couple reviews for you because we always get a kick out of reading this i just read the first few lines of these reviews well and some i mean because just and i'm just gonna guess i'm gonna guess it's a mixed bag because definitely just from people i've talked to about this movie you either love it or you despise it yeah there the the reviews that i've skimmed through here and there's about 900 or not 900 of them i don't know how many there are but i have a couple i want to read the first few sentences of give you a kicker like a laugh it's pretty funny some of them you'll agree with, and then others, of course, you won't. Um, in the following decade, Hereditary is a film which will serve as a benchmark for all other films, both inside and outside of the horror genre. Wow. That's pretty high a praise. Benchmark. Wow. Five out of five I, I stars. It's, it's so... Um, 
it's so unusual, though. I don't know if I would consider it a benchmark. I know what they're saying. Yeah, I don't think uh, universally it's going to hold up to a yeah. grand audience. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah, it's, exactly. And I, and I know they're completely different films, but like it's not going to hold up to Jumanji. Like it's just like... Right, it's, right, it's, exactly. It's not yeah. going to be that... It, it's probably a better... It's a better movie, but it's not going to... As a benchmark, a benchmark... It, if you're considering it to be financially successful, a benchmark, then it's not going to be that. Although it was... Right. I, I think they're probably trying to say they, they, he set the bar really high with this one. But even that, I don't know. It, it's, it's its own thing. Like, I, it's I its own even... thing. It's, it's got that killing of a sacred deer, deer vibe where it's just its yeah. own entity and it right. should be respected for, its, for it being its own entity. Um, so I don't know that I agree with that. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. <laughs> um, being so polite and then Gabe comes hard at him. I, I, like, I like to come in hard at the reviews. <laughs> Here's here's one that's funny though. It's the follow up one. Thank God I didn't pay for it. <laughs> Hereditary is a movie that did not need to be made. Of course, no movie ever needs to be made, but Hereditary is a movie that really did not need to be made, more so than other movies that have been made. <laughs> that shit kills me. I'm sorry. That was funny. Oh my God. This is my favorite part of, of the show. Or these that segments. was funny, dude. I'm sorry. This is great. I, this is great. Because what's crazy about it is I, be, I, I, I actually agree with him, not in the sense that it didn't need to be made, but, well, a, a little bit. Uh, not because I didn't like it, because I did, but I just like this guy's, uh, he's like, no movie ever needs to be made. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Well, it's like you, you well, he, it's like he said, you know what, this movie, like, here's my thesis. Oh, now that I think about it, that could apply to anything, and I take it back. Yeah. It's like you have a delete button, man. You can, you can delete that. You can get rid you of it. it. Here's yeah. one that kills me too. Here's our, here's our uh, academic. Here's our scholar. Ready for this one? <laughs> the biggest disservice you can do to any artistic work or effort is, go, is to go into it with preconceived notions about what the genre is or isn't. You can do no further violence to art by then settling how well you feel the piece fit into the genres you've already defined for it as your criteria for evaluating its merit. Okay. Okay. This dude's going in deep with some real thoughtful shit. Get out of here with that bullshit. I mean, what? Like, I don't, I don't, I mean... I don't quite understand what he's trying to say. Let's Is he get just in, trying to say it's not a horror movie? Yeah. Don't judge it by horror standards? I, I don't that, know. That's that weird. would have been an easier way to describe it. Yeah, no kidding. That's why I said he's our uh, uh, academic in residence because he's like... <laughs> <laughs> he fancies himself that way, that's for sure. My top A24 film. This is a fantastic, masterful, masterful horror film from Arya Aster. This is not a scary film from involving cheap jump scares. This is a pure horror film that takes place around family or one or a family that's falling apart that's pretty fair yeah i think so pure horror though no i, no. I wouldn't say that the, the parts that are scary are very scary like they are i, I like they are genuinely making your sc your skin crawl which i think is increasingly hard to do nowadays yeah and here so I, I i do want to say that the horror elements really do work as horror elements yeah they do they do. Here's one that's uh, from just three weeks ago. It's actually real funny. I absolutely hate horror, Alan. Uh-oh. I hate it when my mom watches it. I hate how in every horror film, 
the characters are stupid on purpose. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you want to watch a horror film or read a horror film, read Warrior Cats, whatever the hell that is. Warrior First, Cats. I have no idea. Get, I'm writing it down. I'm gonna check it you out. You gotta check out War. Yeah, check out Warrior <laughs> Cats. I mean, if this guy's saying that it's good, it's obviously gonna be good. Here's 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 a funny one. And maybe a little inconsiderate. First of all, when the kid ate the nuts, the first thing you do is call an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's true. You don't drive 80 miles an hour on a road at night. You call an ambulance. <laughs> that one was actually really funny. And then lastly, it's a modern classic. Five out of five stars. Those, those who hate it either misinterpreted the trailer and paid for a different style of movie or gave the excuse that the movie is slow without taking it into consideration that the sudden rapid progression of the movie's plot is part of the chaotic story format being told and such criticism are of those who inquire that a movie must be full of jump scares to uphold a temporary, bland, repetitive, and predictable yet somewhat consistent approach. Okay. He's getting into my some man, stuff there. I like that guy. He's he, my best friend. He's getting into some stuff there. I think I, he, like I think he's making some sense. No, I agree 100 percent with him. Um, and so yeah, those are some some fun ones. Uh, uh, seriously, this is I think this is my favorite segment on the show. By far. We're, we're going to change up some hilarious. things. This is a funny one. It makes me laugh at these reviews. Look, what's interesting about those is like when you read them and then you look down and there's like. 800 thumbs up or 800 people found this helpful. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit, just come to our podcast and listen. We'll help you figure (laughs) shit out. No kidding, man. No kidding. (laughs) Anyway, so this is hereditary. So I'm going to come in with a quick summation and then uh, I can't say that I uh, disagree with all of those reviews. There's a thing in this movie where I feel kind of imbalanced. I feel... Like uh, moments where I'm just completely taken by it all and other moments where I'm like, when does this shit over? So, so wait, what, like when you say that, I assume you're talking about uh, it was slow at, at points. I don't mind, as you know. I mean, I, I choose right. all fucking Criterion collections. Those are mostly slow <laughs> movies. So It's your go-to. <laughs> But was that so? When you say that, when you say like, when is this going to end? Is that what you're thinking? Is it too slow or too boring? I just it it, it was a you know what's interesting for me and I, I, I look I liked this movie so I'll preface it by saying that I liked the movie I think it's a movie that people should watch I think Ari Aster is a hell of a filmmaker and uh, interestingly interestingly enough to what you said like maybe his short films don't hold up I love that idea because out the gate you come out with a, a feature film like this, that you're, you've got some skills. And even if you borrowed some of those skills from Kubrick, you've got them. Like there's some things in here he stole right out of Kubrick's playbook. I'm totally. just going just to say it. And that's okay. You emulate people you admire and you emulate people who are masters and then you become a master. So that makes sense to me. And uh, it's a hell of a film. So don't get me wrong by saying, I don't want to be misconstrued that I don't like it. At, at the same time, it doesn't hold the same curiosity for me. And I know they're completely different movies and I'll keep going back to it. Killing of a Sacred Deer. I'm still curious as fuck about that movie. I'm still like, what is going on? Whereas this one, when it ended, I went, okay. Like it was good and I enjoyed it. 
but it's not a rewatchable every horror month. I'm not going to watch it every horror month. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that for me, because it's October, I'm looking at it going, I don't, I don't need to rewatch this one next year. It's a member last podcast. I gave it a 10 year span. Poltergeist was every once every 10 years. And I think uh, hereditary for me is once every five years. Okay. So it, you, it's got some rewatchability for you. It's there. It's there. It's there. See, to me, I, I couldn't, when I saw it the first time, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop trying to figure out what the hell happened and what was going on. And so that's why I watched it again and again so I could figure it out. I like your uh, analysis of it, and that makes sense to me. I think I could go with that. Because originally I wasn't thinking that maybe it's all kind of uh, – just part of the the craziness of the family and, and some of their psychosis. It was actually a real cult. And I still kind of believe it might be like, that still could be like, it's just a real cultish thing that happened. And that's the world that's been created where there's this cult that does this stuff and they're trying to bring back payment. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I also like your, uh, your, uh, your analysis of it. I think that's an interesting perspective, which maybe it's a deep, dark uh, horror kind of, drama based on um psychological disorders that's yeah the more i watch the more i watch this movie the more i i just pick up on clues that and it, it might just be because i made up my mind and so i'm just looking for anything that'll confirm it but it just i i watch it and i'm like man that's what this is about i guarantee it that's what it feels like it it feels so like the, just the dealing with the mental illness feels so real and the way he he wrote it was so great. I will say one thing real quick. Uh, as far as in terms of his short films, there's one everyone needs to watch. It's on YouTube. It's called The Turtle's Head. The Turtle's Head. The Turtle's Head. That one's great. It's fantastic. I will. Totally different thing. Yeah. Totally different thing. No, the, there's no doubt in my mind that this dude's a, a great filmmaker. Like there's just not any, like sometimes you can walk away. We always say this, but when you look at, look who's knocking at my door and you're like, how did Scorsese become what he is? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause it's such a shitty film, but, <laughs> it is. uh, but you watch this and you go, this guy can tell stories and he can make movies. Like there's not really any doubt to his skill set, Right. But like I said, it, it doesn't carry with it the rewatchability factor on a yearly schedule for horror months. So like I'll watch the shining every year, every single year. This is a one in five. I think he's, I think it's good. You do have me getting the, 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 the brainwaves going where I'm thinking, okay. Cause now you got me thinking about this last shot where they, they all say hell payment and then it cuts back and it looks like everybody in the treehouse is in a miniature. Yeah, right? So that tells me there's something encapsulated there in the mind of an individual. Do you know what I mean? Like an overseeing. So there's something to be said there. And I, I do agree with you. I mean, I would rewatch it just to break it down more and try to figure it out. But in terms of like pure horror, like for those listening, like I'm not going to watch it every October to get a jump scare. No. Uh, yeah, I agree. In fact, this probably would have been better to not do during horror month because it, it really... It's got some really scary stuff. I, it doesn't feel like a horror movie. Like when you're thinking October, you want to find something that's super scary or creepy or something. And, and there are elements, sure, but it's not really horror. Right. <clears throat> so this is, uh, I'm going to come in with, 
You were at 8.4? Yes. Birdheads. Birdheads. I love it. I'm going to come in. Oh, real quickly. Uh, IMDb, 7.3 out of 10. Um, and then Rotten Tomatoes. I lost my Rotten Tomatoes score. Oh, I got it right here. Give it to me. <laughs> uh, 89% critics. Okay. 60, 67% for audience. So I'm going to come in between them. So you said 89 and 69? Is that what you said? 89 and 67. 67. So I'm actually probably more right in the area of IMDb. I'm going to come in with a 7.1. Since it's horror month, 7.1 decapitations. Yeah, there you go. That's metal. That's, that's, I was trying to that's get raw. Metal. Trying to get yeah. metal for you, Alan. Trying to bring it in. <laughs> This is the Tame Aperture Podcast, uh, doing Hereditary from 2018 by director Ari Aster. Go check it out. Uh, good movie. Alan came in with an 8.4. I came in with a 7.1. And uh, be sure to go to attameaperture.com. Check uh, out our previous episodes and give us suggestions on future episodes. Uh, join us next week as Horror Month continues. Horror Month 2020, Tame Aperture signing out. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify and YouTube.